0: Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability. I'm Stephanie Shockley. And I'm Robin King. And we're your hosts. Today, we're talking with the Reverend Gabe Lamazares. Gabe serves as the Associate Rector at St. Philip's Church in Durham, North Carolina. Since his ordination as a priest in 2011, he has served congregations in Portland, Oregon, Manhattan, and Queens. He received his Master of Divinity from the General Theological Seminary and his Bachelor of Arts in Theology from Boston College. Gabe lives in Durham, North Carolina with his husband, Terry, and their dog, Marley. welcome to the accessible altar
1: podcast
2: thank you glad to be here
1: on the podcast we've alluded to several times the ongoing covid19 pandemic yeah this
0: entire thing the entire podcast (laughs) has been recorded within the the covid19 pandemic Mm -hmm. and we started it in um spring of started working on it spring of what 2020 yeah Mm yeah takes a minute takes me a minute to I was gonna remember say I had to stop and,
1: like <laughs> yeah wait what year was that? What year are we in right What happened? Um, and it, over the course of that, I think one of the things the whole world and especially the church have been coming to new terms with is the role of public health and the impact of public health. Mm-hmm. But you come with a really particular background in some of that. And I think we'll start with, if you're willing to share some of your HIV AIDS service work.
2: Sure. Um, I'd be happy to do that. I worked for an agency um, here in the triangle of North Carolina, which is Raleigh-Durham and Chapel Hill um, called the Alliance of AIDS Services Carolina that provided all kinds of services to people with HIV um, here in the triangle. Um, And I worked as a Client advocate, I worked as a um, treatment uh, educator for people with HIV around medications um, and and other things like that. Um, And I worked as a HIV outreach uh, worker for gay and bisexual men, uh, which involved mostly going to places where um, gay and bi men were gonna be and throwing a ton of condoms at them. Um, So so I did that from 2000 to 2004. But in terms of my intersection with the the AIDS epidemic, um, one of the first things I did when I came out when I was 18 was volunteer um, as a, it was called a quilt monitor um, Hmm. in Boston at a display of a portion of the the AIDS quilt. Um, And we unfolded the squares of the quilt and we walked around uh, dressed in white with Uh, Kleenexes in our, uh, in our pockets for people who would be, who would be upset and crying and mourning, um, at the various panels. Um, I I was 18, 18 years old. Um, we were, when I came out, we were conscripted. Um, it wasn't studio 54. It was like, it's like a war we were being conscripted into. Um, and it was, and it was scary. Um, in a lot of ways, but we also were able to take care of each other, which was great. Um, so since then, I mean, uh, I lost a boyfriend when I was 23 and he was 28, um, to AIDS, uh, which was, uh, absurd, awful. Um, and I lost my brother, um, to AIDS in 2001. Um, so I, have been up and down and around, uh, this uh, the HIV epidemic um, since since I came to adulthood um, so my my opinions and my sort of um, the things that I think and say about the epidemic are not just as a as a professional but also um, as a person, as a volunteer, um, as someone who has lost people that I've loved um, to AIDS, um, and as someone who's lived in community uh, dealing with all the repercussions of HIV in a what is a relatively small um, gay community when you compare it to the larger mm-hmm. uh, society. So I hope that's fair.
1: So you have slash are living through really two substantial mm-hmm. public health crises.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, one of which, I think it's, uh, one of which the HIV epidemic has such effective treatment mm-hmm. beginning about 1996 um, that it's, it's still HIV is still certainly spreading, um, mm-hmm. but it, it it's not people don't get sick or don't get as sick as they used to many people. Um, although it still has a social shape, which means mm-hmm. um, poor people and marginalized people and people with, with all kinds of issues um, tend to, um, tend to have a much more difficult disease course. Um, and then we also have uh, PrEP, um, which is uh, mm-hmm. pre-exposure prophylaxis, the, the availability of something that can help people prevent uh, transmission, which is massive, um, massive. So, so those yeah. two things, but, but in the middle of the other pandemic, I can't help but think, you know, it took a long time. It took long a long time. time. To get to effective treatment, it took a long time to get to effective um, uh, prophylaxis, mm-hmm. and we still haven't gotten to vaccination. Yeah, you know, this is thirty years. Uh, this year was the was the anniversary of the the appearance in the MMWR, the um, uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report from the from the CDC um, of the you know this many guys that um, had capacity sarcoma in San Francisco Um, you know, it's, it's been 30 years Uh, and we still don't have a vaccine. Still
1: don't have a vaccine.
2: You know, the, the, um, I I know there are lots of factors involved, but the speaking of, we were talking earlier about urgency Mm -hmm. um, and how urgency can cause, you know, things to change and things to change quickly and things to happen um, and it's, it's impossible for me to not consider the, the urgency of a, of a pandemic that, to be fair, um, spreads in a, a, through respiratory d- droplets um, and that, you know, can get everywhere pretty quickly. Um, but that, bam, things happened. You know, uh, I got my first vaccine for COVID March 1st of, of this year um like the basically a year almost to the day as to when lockdowns began to be considered in New York which is where mm-hmm. I was at the time and it's just i was stunned at how quickly it all went down and i'm glad I, i'm not going to you know yeah i'm not going to complain about it um but but i i can't help but think where does the urgency come from does it come from the people that are infected the people that are in danger um yeah so I kind of went on. Sorry.
1: No, I think you, you brought up a lot of points. I'm hoping we're going to spend some more time on. Um, and I, I want to, if it's okay with you, I want to dwell a little bit on some of the factors that you think you have observed are driving urgency differently between the AIDS epidemic and the HIV, AIDS HIV epidemic and the COVID 19 epidemic.
2: Sure. Um- so some some of the things I think have to do with just the the epidemiology of the disease, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with AIDS, you're talking about a bloodborne, um, sexually transmitted disease, which means you can't go to the supermarket and get it. Yeah. Um, you know, you you can't. It's not. It doesn't spread that way. Whereas with COVID, you definitely can. Um, you can go to the supermarket. You can go to church. You can go to all of the places that people tend to go. Um, you can get it at home if the wrong person brings it into the house. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a much faster um, uh, transmission profile. Um, and it's much faster to kill, too. Um, you know, people can die relatively quickly um, with COVID. Um, with HIV, you have, you know, like I said, it was sexually transmitted, which meant it spread slower. Um, and also there's a latency period. or or at least a period before they don't like to say latency because it's not like there is ever a time when HIV isn't working, but there is a a long period uh, that can be as few as three years, as long as 10 um, or never um, Mm -hmm. when uh, that it'll take that long for HIV to kill someone um, with opportunistic infections. So so they're, they're different in that sense. And, and, uh, and you can see how something like COVID that can spread quickly, and that okay. can kill quickly, um, and that is, um, is not as socially bound, though, I'm not going to give up that it's socially bound, because oh, it is. it's completely um, socially bound. Um, but, I will not argue know, with
1: you on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah.
2: No, no, no. I, I, I definitely see that. Um, but it, it, uh, it is, HIV s- stays for the most part in the communities that, that it is. So, um, uh, which is not to say that heterosexuals can't get it. It's not to say that people who receive blood transfusions before the right time can't get it. I'm not saying any of that, you know, Ryan White got it for goodness Mm -hmm. sakes, but I'm speaking from the perspective of a gay community that, um, that, that transmitted it within, within sexual networks um which meant that the the toll the death toll in the community was much higher than it was outside um and so you know people outside that community didn't heard about it but didn't necessarily understand what the impact was whereas we within did understand what the impact was because it was it was happening to us with people who were relatively close to us um and so uh so there's that, and then of course there's who is being infected, who is being mm-hmm. affected. Um,
1: I was gonna say, like you were talking about how it was largely, again, not mm-hmm. exclusively, but largely yeah. spread within a gay community, mm-hmm. and for a lot of the history of the disease, the gay community was already heavily
2: stigmatized. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, yep, and that mm-hmm. was the, you know, the the thing that you know, Larry Kramer, right? Yeah. Larry Kramer and, uh, and and some of the early history and ACT UP, um, mm-hmm. the the um, the protest and research group um, and uh, education group that did a lot of actions, uh, very public, very visible um, actions uh, against people that they thought were in the way of 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 gay men getting the treatment that they needed, um, and the the urgency. That they needed. That's what ACT UP wanted was urgency, mm-hmm. um, but they all said, you know, <laughs> that Reagan didn't say AIDS mm-hmm. until 1987. I mean, that's the that's the dictum, right? It, which is yep. a way of saying he didn't care <laughs> until 1980, until he was told to care in 1987, um, after he had starting started um, his dementia and you know, until it was, uh, for whatever reason, it was decided that it was politically expedient for him to say it. Um, but there was, there's this, and it's hard to let go of, that between MSM, uh, men who have sex with men, uh, and um, IV drug users, mm-hmm. uh, who were the other group that were uh, inordinately affected, in, um that nobody cared. Yeah. Certainly people in government didn't care. You know, they got what they deserved. I mean, you know. Uh, whereas a narrative can be composed at least at first in the COVID pandemic, because there's, there's more to that. Um, but at first, a narrative can be composed of innocence, mm-hmm. of it just happened to these poor people. And it did just happen to these poor people. And mm-hmm. I'm not make fun of that. Um, but the narrative of innocence really does help in terms of people, you know, feeling urgency and getting behind care mm-hmm. and research. So,
1: Yeah. And I think we're starting to see that tilt in the COVID pandemic where um, it is the people who are more likely to have, you know, grocery cashier jobs and places where you don't necessarily have access to paid time off. You can easily lose your job, especially in the U.S., um, who are remaining in places where they're very high risk, whereas, you know, um, white collar workers are much more likely to be able to work from home and get their food and groceries delivered and construct a much safer universe for themselves.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that that was true from the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. You know, when when everybody went on lockdown, who who lost their livelihood? Yep. You know, it, it was people who actually had to show up in body and, and do things um, who were let go from their jobs. You know, it's, it, it, it was clear from the very beginning that, that, um, that the, the in-person service class um, mm-hmm. was going to be affected uh, significantly. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the social shape, which is something that, that I think I learned about through the AIDS epidemic was that it, they would talk about the, the social um uh shape of the epidemic uh in other words that it wasn't just about how the virus was medically transmissible that it had a shape that was based on socioeconomics that was based on stigma um that was based on you know a a number of different factors that affected access to care that affected um you know the ability to choose Mm -hmm. to use protection for instance um you know, uh, women in, in abusive relationships, especially would bring that up and say, do you think I can choose to use a condom? Is that, do you think that's something I can tell my husband to do? Um, sex workers would bring that up and say, you know, sometimes I can, sometimes I can't, I charge more when I don't use a condom. Um, but I I have to make money. Um, and so you have this, this social shape, uh, that Mm -hmm. the, that the, that any epidemic um assumes uh, and it, i mean and i think it, it definitely has a um socioeconomic shape and it has since the very beginning but the COVID pandemic also right now speaking of the narrative of innocence um this the 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 demonizing of the unvaccinated mm-hmm. um, i was become uh, really interesting and by interesting i mean troubling, um, troubling. And, something that really needs to be looked at.
1: Yeah. I was thinking about this interview last night and I think I saw a news article from Australia where the government is threatening. is really the only word to stop covering the care for people who don't get vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this, this is not good. We know this is mm-hmm. not Christian.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: government may not care about that but this is going to lead to a lot of
2: worse situations yeah and we're still you know and it's still it shows up even in news Mm -hmm. like the the headlines will say you know this and it's it's not like it's not true but you know um uh you know uh in cases cases begin to rise right now it's happening cases begin to rise among the unvaccinated yep the unvaccinated like the unvaccinated, like, are we talking about uh, what were they called in Game of Thrones? Um, the un, the unsullied, the unsullied, yes, the unsullied. Anyway. Ooh, okay, right. that's it. What are they? The unsullied, <laughs> like they're you know the unvaccinated, the unvaccinated. Yeah. Um, and I get that. I mean, we we had um, I won't get into the whole relationship, but someone connected to Terry's family. Um, who uh, was an anti-vaxxer. She didn't, she was mm-hmm. not going to get vaccinated. Uh, she thought, you know, it was poisonous and that she was just going to boost her immune system. And that was all. Um, and she contracted it and she died in four weeks. Um, oh, I'm and so sorry. It, oh, thank you. I mean, we weren't that close, luckily, but it, yeah. it, uh, at the same time, it was this awful, tragic thing, yeah. um, which on the one hand, you can say, it didn't have to be that way. It could have mm-hmm. been different. And on the other hand, it's easy for that to turn into, well, it's our own fault. You know, oh, well, Uh, and and that is a that is a troubling sort of turn of events Um, that that is similar to speaking of things that we've learned from the AIDS epidemic Mm -hmm. that is stigmatizing and is similar to kind of saying, well, you know, I don't care if you don't want to get vaccinated. I don't I don't care what, you know, go ahead, do what you want. Um, And it may turn into, like you said, um, not 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 paying for services. Mm -hmm. I don't think it'll turn into not offering services, although that's talked about all the time, all the time. Like, why should these people be able to, you know, to, to talk about how awful medicine is and how awful the vaccines are? And then when they're sick, show up at our hospitals and take up resources and it's
1: um, because society is judged by it how it cares for the least among them
2: yeah how about that
1: very very like basic
2: how about that because because as humans we we owe um we owe care and alleviation of suffering uh, mm-hmm. if we have it um to to other human beings like how Stephanie, about
1: that i know we have strayed very close to topics about both generally and specifically about the pandemic that are very close to your heart. This is really interesting conversation. And I'm I'm right
0: there with both of you on on this particular issue. And, you know, on this, um, in this sense of, you know, we all have a lot of feelings about what people do. And sometimes people do really reckless and thoughtless things. Um, COVID, behaviors around COVID are an example, but there's not, it's not a good, reason like we need to be better than like revenge
1: right or whatever it is we Mm want to I think some level it's punishing that's my sense of some of the rhetoric around that Mm. right is we and I mean this is very like I read the news and I listen to people who I think are smart armchair observations so um But I think a lot of people are really angry at all of these, like, you know, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. unvaccinated army, which they're not. They're Mm -hmm. people who are struggling with health decisions Mm -hmm. um, who are keeping them from resuming their life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And a part of me gets that. And a part of me also knows that we still owe them care and a livable world. Mm -hmm. And... Time as much as that also irks me to figure out what they're gonna do and for us to provide some of the other buffers to keep us all healthy. I mean, I find it I I find it as irritating. I really
0: and I really do find it as mm-hmm. irritating as the next person. And I was um, incredibly angry. I mean, Robin and I have talked about this in in an earlier episode of the podcast. I was incredibly angry at the beginning of the pandemic when commentators or uh, in some cases, politicians kept making comments like, well, don't worry, you know, you'll be fine if you get it. It's just X, Y, Z people who it's going to kill Mm -hmm. as if X, Y, Z people fill in the blank, whoever they were, um, didn't matter. Um, That's a, that's such a huge, huge issue for me. And so it is, and and related to that is very frustrating when people don't want to do things that protect all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't want to participate in making public health better, but at the same time, the leadership that they've had, the rhetoric that they've been exposed to, whatever is so toxic and so unhelpful that how can people make good decisions? Honestly, and, and regardless, that's never is never a reason to talk about whether or not people get treatment or whether or not, you know, Mm -hmm. we pay for it or whether or not, whatever. I don't, you know, you can be mad, but that's an individual emotion you get to have. It's not policy. Doesn't, isn't supposed to run on emotions.
2: It is um, blowing me away how much this conversation is parallel. To Mm -hmm. conversations that were had um, in the kind of mid 90s um, about HIV. Because there were, well, there were always people who wouldn't use Mm -hmm. condoms, who, you know, for all kinds of different reasons um, and reasons that you can't just chalk up to, you know, um, malice. Mm-hmm. Um, reasons that you can chalk up to mental health issues, reasons that you can chalk up to actual values um, about the, the importance of sex in, um, in gay male identity and communities. There are all kinds of ways to talk about it, but people w- wouldn't use condoms um, and and some of them would get infected and the rage mm. that was directed at them not by, not by other people with HIV who'd caught it before, but by people who hadn't. Um, who were just like, my lover died after, you know, a year of the most miserable, you know, uh, horrible things that happened to him. And you're just going to go out there without condoms and have sex and get infected. You're spitting on his grave. Like, I am not making that up. I'm not yeah. exaggerating. Yeah. No, I was yeah. going to say, that sounds like something you heard. That is, I did. I did hear it. You're spitting on yeah. your graves. Um, and it, but it, it, it recalls sort of the loss of that narrative of innocence that I was talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, we didn't know we were innocent. We, you know, we caught it and we couldn't do anything about it and we deserve all the all the compassion and, and pity in the world, but you knew you could have vaccinated yourself I, for COVID. You could have worn a condom. You could have done all of these things and you didn't do it and you deserve whatever you get. Um, and, I, and, and there are people who are like, I hope you do get it um, because how dare you, you know, you were saying, um, uh, Stephanie, you know, uh, why, why won't they contribute to a better sort of public health kind of okay system um to to the behaviors that lead to um there being less you know less infection less less sickness less death you know why won't they do it what's their and we're talking about the unvaccinated but it was the same conversation that was had with people who weren't using condoms um
1: and as you were going through that list sorry if i'm interrupting you no please go ahead i i'm hearing in my head the conversations i hear behind the backs and not in a in a way that's not meant to be malicious but like Mm -hmm. so and so got COVID well were they wearing their mask did they Mm -hmm. get like Mm -hmm. let me see if I can track this airborne infection that you received going out into spaces with other people down to the specific thing you could have done yeah and sometimes you can do that and sometimes you just can't Mm
2: -hmm. well and and to an extent too because there's there's this whole kind of you know they weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing so mm-hmm. they deserve what they get but there's also the i need to aden- identify what i was doing, what i do yeah that they weren't doing yeah. Yeah. so that i can defend myself from my own fear yeah of getting it right. um like if they didn't wear a mask well ah there it is you know <laughs> i always wear my mask and so i'm going to be fine uh, yeah, and it, I, but, yeah they, these but these these it 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 accre- it, it it accretes to mm-hmm. all of the public health behaviors, you know, yeah. did so-and-so got HIV? Well, did he always wear a condom? Oh, well, you know, he went to the bathhouse. So obviously he deserved it. I don't go to the bathhouse, <laughs> you know, it, it, the, the dynamics are so similar um, that it's really almost shocking.
0: I think, um, and I had a thought about that and it's just like left my head. Hold on. Um, oh oh i know what it was you know one of the things that i certainly felt in at least in 2020 is i felt like there was um such a lack of leadership that you had to just guess and that almost seems like a parallel too right like there's there's not a lot of information we don't they kept saying that it's droplets but it's not aerosolized mask doesn't help oh does a mask help maybe a mask helps like everything was just Mm-hmm. back and forth and whatever and so you you know people were wiping down their groceries people were doing all the like you just felt many of us at least um you know speaking for myself felt kind of paranoid trying to figure out what is the thing that is going to be the best practice here what can I do mm-hmm. um and and i i didn't you know you just didn't know like the guidance who knows there wasn't a lot of guidance mm-hmm. there was like this power vacuum at the top mm-hmm. of 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 nothing and there we were and like all three of us were in situations of we've got communities of people that gather in a space and yeah. we need to figure out what to do mm-hmm. and um, that and that's a, it, sorry it, it was Please. awful no it was just awful to feel like i you know i'm not an epidemiologist i don't know anything about this and i'm trying to figure out what I do and and I and how to make decisions that protect mm-hmm. people or or whatever. I that was I think um one of the things that was so hard about it and that made people want to be like, well wait, what, what did you do? What exactly did you tell me exactly what you did? Mm-hmm. Well you know because there wasn't a lot of information and it kept changing
2: mm-hmm. constantly. Mm-hmm. And I wanna um we could go down a really interesting I think Thing, if we wanted to, which is how did we as clergy make decisions about about what was okay and what was not okay and what what we were going to do with congregations? But I, I do want to address kind of what you were what you were saying um, before, uh, which is the lack of information. Um, mm-hmm. Which is, if you go right back to the HIV epidemic nineteen eighty one yeah. to three, um, you're talking about people saying that it's caused by poppers. Um, in other words, oh gosh, you know, that's right! I'd
0: forgotten about that. That's
2: Absolutely, it nice. was caused yeah. by poppers, That it was yeah. caused by yeah. all these different things. Could you get it by kissing? Could you get it by sharing plates and and glasses?
1: Public um, toilets. I remember there being a whole yeah. like. Oh yeah,
2: there's public toilets are always a favorite of, yeah. of of people who are who are scared, who are freaking out about mm-hmm. you know where is this going to come from because it already feels like here you are using public, a public toilets toilet kind of that out someone everybody, else has used. Right. <laughs> like, we're already on the you know, end. We're already all sketched up public, in public toilets. toilets. You know? Um, and so it's it's easy right. to push people right over the edge with that. But, you know, there were, I remember, you know, these are apocryphal stories, but of of people going home because they were sick um, and they were always fed on paper plates um, mm. and on disposable cups because, and they were forced to eat outside because people thought, well, that might be one of the ways that it's transmitted. Um, so, you know, people's, and oh, Gosh, the AIDS epidemic is so rich. Um, um, so, can can I talk a little bit about that kind of the church's response?
1: Oh yeah, no, please. That's on. That's um, definitely that's, on our. List that's on the list. Yeah. So please.
2: please. So I've got a couple of different ideas. Um, one of them is that in in my experience, and I've been. I've been here in North Carolina the whole time. So the guidance that we received from the church was from the diocese of North Carolina. Um, In addition to the various mask mandates and various things, North Carolina has a a heinous Republican legislature, but a democratic governor. Um, And so uh, he was really on it in terms of, Following the science, you know, issuing the mandates, all of that. Um, so we had all of that, but I found that the church, uh, um, for reasons that we can talk about, was always more conservative than the guidance. Um, you know, the guidance said you can be inside. Be careful. You know, we can't. We can't guarantee no risk, but you can be inside with masks and distancing or you can be, to be safer, you can be outside with masks and distancing. Whereas what the diocese said was stop. Stop any in-person meeting.
1: Mm.
2: No in-person meetings, no worship, no, that's what North Carolina said, no, 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 no. Uh, Everything goes on Zoom. Close down the, the offices, everything goes on Zoom um and and which which is a bit of a more you know a more conservative standard Mm -hmm. um and it was just it was interesting to me because i think ultimately it was motivated out of compassion right out of Mm -hmm. there's no way that we want anybody to to get infected in our churches like you know and so we're going to do whatever we have to to make that happen
1: but i I don't know if y'all
2: found that as well
1: I found some of that. I would say, I mean, so I'm in the diocese of Edmonton in Alberta, um, and I was watching like the pandemic sort of move from the east coast to the west coast, which is imperfect. I know it hit places like King County very early, mm-hmm. but that was sort of the general trajectory in like late mm-hmm. February, early March, 2020. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was looking ahead at what some of my colleagues on the East coast were going through as they were navigating the move to being online and out of their buildings and thinking it's going to come here. What do I need to have like in my head?
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And it was literally four months after my start date at my current church. Um, And I was like, okay, on Sunday, I will need to tell people, We're probably going to get shut down for the pandemic. Check out our Facebook page, get on our newsletter, do all these things. And I was playing D&D with my friends and um, checked my email when it wasn't my turn. And I had an email from the bishop saying like, worship services are canceled. You can do something online. We're out for at least two weeks. (laughs)
2: I think ours did too at least yeah it was like two
1: weeks (laughs) and I'm like two years later we have managed to be in the building for like five weeks five six weeks Mm. wow wow
2: because our building
1: is small so as long as like physical distancing exists we Mm -hmm. are online Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah two weeks but the province didn't act for another week so I'm in New Jersey
0: and you know so we were early and obviously Mm -hmm. we were early and I have not been out of New York city for very many years. So I was sitting here in New Jersey, watching New York city, just fall apart. Um, Just, Mm -hmm. just with experiencing what I would call survivor's guilt for the first, I've never experienced that before. And Mm -hmm. I, I watched New York with such a sense of guilt that I was here in New Jersey that I had, I live on a I live in a rectory. I live on five acres. I was ju- I, I had so much space and safety. I just felt oh god, I felt awful. But New Jersey was was ext- was very very affected. Um and it and again it happened really fast. Um I had a big funeral that I did on March sixth, and I'll never forget this because it haunted me for weeks. Um and March eighth was the last. Sunday services. So March 6th was a Friday. And I remember having all these people in the building and all this chaos. And I was concerned about it, but not concerned enough not to do it. And then we had, you know, regular services on March 8th and the following Friday, which I think was, the, I guess it's the 13th. That makes sense. Um, yeah. I think the 13th, we had a zoom with the bishop and with an uh, infectious disease specialist, who is a member of one of our congregations uh, in the diocese. And it went we went from like, this is something that's of concern to close everything now. And we were like, when, and they said, the Bishop said to the infectious disease doctor, he said, do you, can we wait till after the weekend or do we need to do it now? And he said, now, like, as soon as you get off this call. And I literally shut, I notified our preschool and we shut the building down.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: mean, and for months right? Just really, and it happened, it was like the zombie apocalypse, just like all of a sudden. I mean, and really, really fast. And New Jersey was like a ghost town because there was nobody on, you know, we have went on lockdown Mm -hmm. and there's nothing, nobody on the roads. It was a very weird time. And they told us nobody is allowed in your building except the people that live in the household of the rector or, you know, the priest in charge Mm -hmm. or whatever. And so that meant my husband and I, um, in the building, by ourselves anything time anything had to be done for months and months and months and months Mm -hmm. um yeah it was very it was very strange it was a very strange very strange time the only thing that was reassuring to me is that it all came from the bishop so it was very much like these are the bishop's orders if you have a problem here's his phone number but we're going to do this. This is our polity. When the bishop gives an order, we follow Mm -hmm. the order, even if we don't like it or whatever. And that we had a governor who was very, there was a lot of leadership in New Jersey, whereas I felt like at the federal level, there wasn't, Mm -hmm. it was, it was a very, it was a very weird time, but I was glad the church was taking it seriously because I was Mm -hmm. so concerned. Mm -hmm. I have my parish is
1: so many people who are older and I was so concerned. Yeah. about that's, the safety of people yeah. in our parish. Mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. I think some of it is driven by a deep concern. I hope I know this has been some of my propelling thought in a lot of the decisions is churches tend to have at least slightly of a population disparity in people who have serious health conditions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. so we tend to have people who would be much more potentially susceptible to COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as I think all everyone who's ever tried to do sound or things in church buildings also knows that they get really stuffy and the airflow is not great. So as we started to realize that was a problem, it's like, well, there's just so many elements to this that are hard to manage well in a church building.
2: And the um, the the removal of um, the common cup as well, mm-hmm. uh, which is understandable, um, and which still hasn't been restored yeah. at least yeah. for us. Not I first. just um, i yeah. we just
0: had clergy conference earlier this week, and that was we actually are working on bringing our, our common cup back mm-hmm. in the diocese mm-hmm. of New Jersey, mm-hmm. and that it's just one of those things that doesn't. The science can say whatever it says, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it it's just complicated for for people,
2: right? Mm-hmm. Well, and it, you know, you know the, yeah. the 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 visuals, the optics, don't right. yield to the science. Like I am drinking out of a cup with everybody else. Like how can that be
1: said? <laughs> right. <laughs>
2: Where it's, kind of, it's something that we finally kind of, you know, we tell people like it's alcohol. Like don't worry it's about
1: silver. it. Silver,
2: you know, but yeah. like. Still You're no drinking
1: I, out of a cup with everyone else.
2: Yeah, there's no getting away from it. Um, no. And I think there were places in the in the epicenters early on in the HIV pandemic that did the same thing mm. until at least until they knew what was going on, um, how how it was transmitted. I think for for a while they did that in in specific parishes, not you know globally, kind of like like we've done now. Um, but there's a we have we currently have a um, there's a, a way to do it that has been approved. Oh, okay. it involves um, either uh, eyedroppers or pipettes and disposable cups, um, and nobody's into it. <laughs> like we're all oh, just, oh, geez! I I'd rather not do it. Why <laughs> not? <back. laughs> <laughs> I would rather not do it. That's cool. Please. Thank you. Thanks Can for that. I-
0: can I, yeah. actually, I wanted to ask a little bit about the parishes that um, speaking of the church's response, I want to go back to the HIV AIDS epidemic for a second and talk about the parishes that responded well mm-hmm. um, to the experience their parishioners were having to the fact that people in their congregations were getting sick. Because mm-hmm. um, I know that you work for one of those sort mm-hmm. of, you know, really famous now for that. I know you worked for St. Luke in the fields in New York City.
2: I did. I did, and they, uh, so for those who might not know, St. Luke in the Fields is in the West Village. Um, it is on Christopher Street and Hudson Street, um, which then, not so much now, but then, uh, and for a long time, was kind of the, the heart of the gay community in, in Manhattan um, for a period uh, when, when AIDS started. Um, And what I know about St. Luke's is that um, they worked really hard, first of all, to welcome gay people, Mm -hmm. which was the precursor. (laughs) You know, if they hadn't done the work to welcome gay people, they wouldn't have had to deal with this problem, right? So so first, they worked to welcome gay people. Um, And then when people started getting sick, um, they did not they did not um, essentially turn them out. They didn't sort of say, well, stay home, you know, or don't come back or we're scared. Don't, you know, they, they kept them in and they provided, they began to provide, like I remember uh, one parishioner who was still there when I was there, uh, was one of the first people that, um, you know, went into the kitchen and started making a ton of food um, for Mm -hmm. some of these guys that, that really needed it. Um, and that needed community as much as anything else, you know, not just um, not just a plate and go, but to, to be fed and to sit down and talk with other people and to be in community. Because a lot of times the sort of the pariah kind of thing was mm-hmm. was as painful as the the illness itself, sort of being um, being cast to one side um, by communities that they had been part of, um, and so. Uh, that was one sort of major response that they did. And then uh, they, <clears throat> and this was the ways they did this were really gay. Like they weren't just making like, you know, mac and cheese and, you know, and uh, I don't know, chili. Like they were making fancy, fancy things because they wanted these guys to have mm-hmm. the best because they weren't going to last. You- um you identify
1: I mean, that as really gay and I, I get that, but yeah. I also want to name that that is true hospitality too.
2: Yeah. No, a- absolutely. Yeah. And I think they were able to demonstrate mm-hmm. hospitality um in a way that that uh that that uh other people maybe haven't taken the opportunity to do mm-hmm. quite like that. They also went into St. Vincent's Hospital, uh, which was one of the first hospitals that really became a place for people to, to receive treatment. And they would go around with a tea cart and little, you know, petty fours and finger sandwiches.
1: That's so like Episcopal Anglican. <laughs> right? Right. I love it at the same time. Yeah, like (laughs) these two cultures have found the overlap on their Venn diagram. All of these
2: things (laughs) have come together, Um, (laughs) and I just love it. I just, uh, you know, in the trenches, man, cucumber sandwiches and and tea, Um, and they did that for a long time. Like they, I think they did it till two thousand. Um, maybe a little bit after um, when the the shape of everything started changing after effective treatment um, in 96, like I said, um, I think they had to sort of change their model and stuff, but they did it for a long time. Um, so, you know, that was, uh, and they became, they became a place where, um, you know, services uh, of remembrance for people with AIDS could happen Um you know, just all of the things that I think people looked for from the church, um, they were able to provide them um, and and made a point of providing them. Uh, the rector helped, um, whose name I don't remember, but who was totally, you know, gung-ho about the thing, uh, which is great. Um, but even if he hadn't been, <laughs> the parishioners would have done it anyway. Um, it's that kind of church. I mean, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
2: the rector is You know like you respect him as long as or her as long as they tell you what they want and then like if mm, it's going to be a problem if if (laughs) if they don't want to do what needs to be done
1: as i have sometimes joked the moment i have like the most authority in, in getting people to do what i have asked them to do is right after the gospel when i suggest they sit down for the sermon they are like, yes, that's what we wanted to do anyways. Sit it. Exactly. <laughs> I've never heard that, exactly. but it's totally true.
2: Oh, the, the the intoxication of telling people to do what they already wanted to do. Please yes. have a seat. Like, yes,
0: we're here for this. <laughs>
2: we, yeah. Yeah. Yep, yeah. ready for that. Um,
0: Amazing.
2: And I, uh, t- there were a number of churches in San Francisco, not just Episcopal churches, obviously, just all kinds of churches who who responded well. And I, I don't want to neglect to mention. Um, churches in places like Raleigh um, and in places like Mobile, Alabama, and, mm-hmm. you know, places that weren't, weren't, you know, that were, unfortunately, one of the narratives, one of the stories that is cliche is people going home from New York, San Francisco, and Chicago, and the big cities, uh, going home to their towns, wherever they came from, wherever they ran away from as quickly as they could. Um, in order to, to try to be taken care of um, and to die. Um, and so there were, there were churches in all of those places, including Raleigh. There were, there were, um, there were especially Baptist churches here um, who stepped up, uh, which, and, which is not to say Episcopal churches didn't, but uh, there were some Baptist churches that really went out of their way. Um, and actually the, um, there was something called the Triangle AIDS Interfaith Network, here in the triangle, which were different churches who were all responding to the, the epidemic. Um, and they were one of the partners that became the Alliance of Aid services, what I worked for. So there was, there were three partners in that, that became that consolidated right around 2000. Um, and they were one of them, uh, train, um, and they, um, and I'll stop in a second. I'm sorry. I just keep talking. Um, they provided, around the time that my brother was sick, um, they provided uh, what were called care teams. Um, so one of the early models of, of providing companionship um, and uh, accompanying care for people with HIV was called the buddy model. So, and that um, uh, aid service agencies did that. They, you know, they paired up somebody who was trained to be a buddy with one person with HIV and they would be their buddy. Um, but, you know, a lot of people found this to be really just crushing. I'm um, tired thinking about yeah, it. Yeah. Like just that a is a lot. Uh, real, uh, it's
0: devastatingly hard thinking about yeah, it.
2: Totally right. Um, and, and a lot of these people burned out real hard, real fast. Um, so, one of the ways that the model was changed was to have a church here in North Carolina to have a church um, basically get together a team of people, kind of 10 people, you know, to pair up with this person with HIV and among the 10 of them kind of provide various kinds of support, you know, um, but it doesn't fall on any one person. Um, And my brother, Tony had a, a care team. Um, that was uh, assigned by by the Alliance of Aid Services, the the agency that I worked for. Um, And they were from a Catholic church, um, St. Michael the Archangel in Cary, North Carolina. Um, And they were chef's kiss. They were splendid. Um, Wonderful. They were his his confidants. They were his um, people who would help uh, from, you know, uh, sort of get, take him out to to lunch, you know, um uh do do various things to kind of just be with him, call him during the week. Um it was magnificent uh what they did. When he when he died, they um they put together his entire uh the logistics for his funeral um and memorial service. They and you know, I I basically with his partner and my mom put it together, uh, the, you know, this is how it's going to go, but all the logistics, all the stuff, the locations, everything, they did everything. Wow. Um, And, uh, yeah. So, uh, from very early on, like you were saying, Stephanie, well into, well into the two thousands, churches were really, Mm -hmm. really stepping up and doing their work. Um, churches often get a bad rap because because of some of the evangelical claptrap that was coming out in the 80s about AIDS and it being a punishment and about homosexuality and all of that. But quietly, a lot of churches did the right thing. Yeah.
0: So I, one of the things that I'm thinking as I'm listening to this, and I, I, you know, and I remember some of this vaguely, Mm -hmm you know, from being like a teenager and 20-something in the 90s and whatever. I, um, and then learning later on, you know, about all the things that had happened and living in New York City and hearing so much of the history. I remember all this and all the community that people put together and the almost chosen family that people mm-hmm. kind of um, developed and how people took care of each other. And the, um, what I'm thinking about as you're talking about this, and as you're telling the experience that your family had with people who stepped up to support you, you know, as your brother is sick and when your brother died. Um, I'm thinking about one of the things that has been so devastating about COVID has been that everything that we would want to do for people in community, people who are suffering, et cetera. It was like off the table. We all had to stay away from each other. I mean, I remember when there was a time, you know, there was a time when you couldn't get N95 masks. You know, we were all like using cloth masks or whatever. We had a stash in my house of two good N95 masks that we had at the time. And it was like, if there's someone who is close to us where the whole family's sick Mm -hmm. and we need to help them, we need to bring them something. Mm -hmm. We have these two Mm -hmm. N95 masks and they're Mm -hmm. in reserve for an emergency. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was like, it was like that. And otherwise you're not going near anybody. If it was like a total emergency and like, there's a whole house where everybody's down and they need something. Otherwise you couldn't, the community wasn't there. You couldn't do all the things you would do for someone in a disaster Mm -hmm. or crisis Mm -hmm off mm-hmm. the table.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a, that's a thing that's been devastating in its own mm-hmm. sort of unique way, I guess, about COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's gave you, and I talked about this last week, an ongoing concern that the isolation is an ongoing concern, I think in our communities
1: and in our churches. Yeah. It's created a whole other layer to the pandemic in terms mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. Community relationship and social support and mental health. Um, I want to say dissolution. It's not really dissolution, but like the evaporation of of those in the face of safety concerns and health concerns.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was something that that we didn't obviously didn't have to do mm-hmm. um, from pretty early on. Once it was figured out how it was transmitted, you know, people could be around. People could hug and, you know, and be with each other and, um, you know, be in community, be in close community, Um, you know, all uh, they could, you know, they could be in the room when their loved one was dying Mm -hmm. instead of not being in the room or not even being in the hospital. You know, there are elements about this, this, this mode of transmission Um, And the the social distancing and and all of those things that are absolute to me are new experiences that that, like you said, prevent some of the crucial um, aspects of community. One of the I'm not going to say I'm not going to say that it's it's a good thing that came out of bad things. I'm just going to say that it was a um, one of the things that was life giving during the AIDS epidemic was this enhanced community, Mm -hmm. um, really tight knit community uh, that felt a little embattled um, and that sort of got closer because of that. Um, And, uh, you know, because of this sort of unified purpose, because of this kind of um, and, and all kinds of just all kinds of reasons, but during the AIDS epidemic, I can only speak for, part of the gay community, the one that I've found myself in and belong to, right? There's a, it's a much larger dynamic, um, a much larger phenomenon than just kind of the generally white gay communities, you know, that are in urban centers, but that's where I was. And I found that during the AIDS epidemic it was so, so tight um, and so life-giving and so warm in many cases. Some people won't, will say it's the opposite, but that's how I experienced it. And after, you know, once it wasn't as big a deal. Do you know what I mean? When when treatment was yeah. better, and then you know that that whole portion of of the gay community kind of just dispersed, just kind of
1: hmm.
2: went our own ways. You know, I I went off and I started dating and I got married and I had other things to worry about and to think about and. You know, um, and it just it just that 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 tight community kind of just came apart. Um, And so I don't miss it. I don't ever want it to happen again. And I did feel really close to those guys then Mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I do miss. Um, So different things can happen in the middle of those. In the middle of pandemics and epidemics um, around human community, uh, but like like we were saying, you know, um, COVID has this this one uh, this social distancing kind of necessity that makes things difficult. And I think um, there are lots of things too that are coming out of it. Um, um, some people working at home, some people uh, quitting their jobs. <laughs> I don't know how they're doing it, honestly, but they are doing it. Um, A lot of people are doing it. it. Um, And they've really asked questions about why are we doing what we're doing? Um, And I don't think they might've asked those questions without this experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so it is, I mean, it's important to say, to not say that it's important to me to not say that, you know, there was a purpose, there was a purpose to all of this suffering Mm -hmm. because that makes me angry. Have you yes. heard
0: you haven't heard Robin on this. I don't think so. I, have, I don't think mm, this is a pet yes, peeve yeah. of hers. I, yes. mm, pet peeve. Pet it peeve.
2: makes me livid. It makes me livid. Um I and and I, I I will say that there are sometimes things that will emerge from these difficult experiences that are valuable.
1: Yeah I think there's a significant line between looking at something that was hard and saying that was horrible. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of that, mm-hmm. I was still able to find good things mm-hmm. and saying that horrible thing happened so I could find these yeah. good things in it. The second one, like that is not, that is yeah. not how my God works. I'm really mm-hmm. certain that is not how the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jesus work. <laughs> I
2: have a I have a whole rant on that that I'm yeah. going to save for another time, but it's a whole, a whole mm-hmm. rant. I just don't. I don't like that. Um, yeah. And uh, like I said, um, good things. Uh, mm-hmm. You can rescue good things out of the shit. Sorry. Yeah. Um, you can rescue good things out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's what I feel like I've, I've done from the AIDS epidemic. I mean, like I said, I don't ever want it to happen again. And if, it, if I could choose for it not to happen, I would, mm-hmm. even if it took away all of this stuff, all of this, this story and this experience and this community that I experienced, and this opportunity to be of service, and these amazing people um, that I, you know, watch die, uh, that I value, that I, I would uh, in an instant, I'd be like, nah, <laughs> let it never happen. That's cool. Yeah, <laughs> fine. That's that's the thing. It's like I am not I'm not going to position it as you know, it happened in order for me to have this or for us Mm -hmm. to have this or for us to learn this, I'm not gonna do that ever. Um.
1: Do you remember the moment when you looked around and you really knew that the AIDS, like not just intellectually, but really knew inside yourself that the AIDS epidemic had
2: Mm -hmm.
1: stopped being an epidemic at least, had changed in how
2: it was? I do. I do remember it. And I remember it as this moment. Mm. I'll never forget it, you know, cause I mean, and, and I, 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 that, that, that shift was like I said, round, right around 96. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was the kind of thing that we started talking about, um, you know, that people were like, Oh my God, these new medications, Holy cow. You know, and we're like, we've heard this before. We've heard all this before. The new medications that will work miracles, whatever. I don't believe second
1: you. verse, just like the first, that's
2: right. Like, come right. on, man. Yeah. You know, like I've heard this before. And I remember it was a date where I heard it mm. first, a date that didn't go anywhere, but which is pity because he was real cute anyway. Um, and And he <laughs> told me, and I was like, come on, man, really? Is this, you know, is this going to be another, you know, baloney kind of? Oh, this is going to change everything. And I was like, "You are crazy." Maybe that's why we didn't go out again. Anyway, um, so but then we started seeing it with our own eyes. Mm. Like there was a guy in the chorus. I was in the, I was in a huge gay men's chorus in Seattle for most of the nineties, mm-hmm. and we saw a lot of guys get sick. We saw a lot of guys uh, die. We saw, yeah. You know, Um, But there's this one guy uh, who like was in a wheelchair, um, couldn't walk anymore, uh, couldn't see anymore. Um, He had CMV retinitis, Um, you know, just like he will not make it to winter. Mm -hmm. We just knew. Um, And then he he went away for a bit and we were like, "Mm, I hope he's okay. And a few months later, um, I went to rehearsal um, and there was a new guy there. And I was like, who is that guy? Do you know that guy? And they're like, dude, that's so-and-so. Did not recognize him. I had only known him sick and I okay. did not recognize him healthy. Mm. Um,
0: Lazarus right was that what they Ooh, to it?
2: totally that's what they called Lazarus. it at the time
0: right yeah
2: the Lazarus effect um right. just uh and that's when we all started thinking oh no this is real this is the real mm-hmm. thing and I remember and and we all experienced it together in our little bits and pieces um and I remember when uh Beneroy Hall which is the the big sort of um Performance Hall, Performing Arts Hall in downtown Seattle. Um, it had been built and then it opened and we were one of the acts that was booked to open Benaroya. Mm-hmm. Um, and we prepared the, uh, a setting of the poem from world war one. Um, mm-hmm. They will grow not old as we that are uh, left old.
1: Yep. Flanders
2: and we sang that on that stage. And I think it was 1997 or 98. And, and we all knew that that was that was the end that was when everything changed um god it still kills me you know because the words are they shall as we that are left grow old age shall not weary them Mm -hmm. nor the years condemn at the going down of the sun uh and at the going down of the sun and and in the morning we will remember them um Mm -hmm. it was just and we all knew it like we all Two hundred of us stood on that stage and felt it sweeping through us. Mm. That that whole season of the epidemic was over, the worst of it for us, for us, for you know, gay men in urban areas. Um, I'm not going to say for anybody else, but for us, that's when that's when it was over. Um. Yeah. And I don't know, like I said, that everybody experiences that. Um, some people just, it's a shading, you know, that you go from one thing to the next. And before you know it, it's, you know, oh, look, wow, things are really different. Um, but for for me and for us, it was, it was a very clear moment of, of goodbye to those years.
1: Thank you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. So the last question I have, because the other striking parallel I see, in part because I think we're all slightly, generally overwhelmed by an enormous problem, is the need to remain willing to care. Do you have any wisdom about that willingness and how to both maintain it for yourself, but also cultivate that within a community?
2: So here's my thing, because the truth is I don't always care, <laughs> um, but it is, it is my duty. It is incumbent upon me to continue to perform care, even when I don't feel it. And often that leads to feeling care. <laughs> um, but
0: that, that right there, mm-hmm. speaking of the basics of Christianity, yeah. that, yep is that that's what that's mm-hmm. what actual love is not valentine's mm-hmm. day not i love ice cream love like whatever that is that actual love is to continue to keep going in acts of care until you care again
2: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm.
0: that seems like that's like foundation of christianity to me in my mind
2: yeah and i mean you you cultivate the willingness i think by experiencing care and experiencing you know, the, the value of caring for someone else and the life-giving quality of that, um, the complexity of that, um, you know, that's how you stay willing, but mm-hmm. man, yeah, it's there hard are hard some days it is hard, it's to hard. Play. It is, it is so hard. Um, and you know, I, I mean, I look, look, can we talk? Mm-hmm. Um, as a priest, there are lots of very important, very meaningful things that I do that I love because I was called to this work. And I, I, I don't want to do it all the time. I don't want to do it. You know, I, there's lots of things. I don't always want to worship. I don't always want to lead meetings. I don't want to, you know, um, uh, uh, nurture volunteers. I don't want to care about people, especially very, very emotionally quirky and, you know, manipulative people Mm -hmm. that nevertheless need my care. Um, I don't want to do a lot of that stuff. I just don't. Um, And so a a good, you know, a good portion of my, of my, um, my ministry is doing care that I don't feel. Um, And, and it, because ultimately it matters. There was, there was this guy and you can um, that there's, this is just a little story to illustrate. There are lots Mm -hmm. of things to talk about in it, but this guy who was like, we were talking about um, charity, about giving, you know, giving Mm -hmm. to, to people uh, whether it's, you know, food or time or whatever. Um, And we were talking about motivation, like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what my motivation is. Like, do, am I doing it because I want to be seen as loving? Am I doing it because, um, because I want to feel good about it, but I don't care about how the other person is receiving it. And some of these are really good questions, but there was one guy who was like, okay, look, the guy who's hungry, who's getting the food you're giving him, doesn't care about your motivation. (laughs) That's right. He doesn't care about your motivation. <laughs> He's hungry. He needs food. You give it to him. You've yep. done your job. You worry about your motivation on your own time, um, and that's not always. Sometimes, of course, I you know I have all kinds of feelings of of compassion and of um, the desire to accompany and all of those things. But uh, you know, ultimately, the person who needs care um, doesn't always care what your motivation is or mm-hmm. whether you feel it in the depths of your heart. Like you just do it. And they, they often get the, they, they get what they need. They get what they want. um, And that is okay. That is the good enough priest.
1: One of the things, and you've talked a little bit how this wasn't your maybe year to year experience of the AIDS mm-hmm. pandemic, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. one of the parallels that exists between these two pandemics because they're both massive health crises is an enormity of loss and grief. Do you have any wisdom for people who will be walking into that for possibly the first time in their life? You don't have to, but.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Um, mm-hmm. One of the reasons that I believe in the resurrection um, is that Christ rose with his scars. Yeah. Um, if he hadn't, if he had just sort of come out with a new perfect body, completely unmarked by, you know, by his his experiences, by his the violence that he endured by his death, um, I wouldn't buy that. I could just be like, I don't need that. <laughs> Because I'll tell you what, um, I, I carry scars and that's, Mm -hmm. they just are, they just are what they are. Uh, they don't, they don't hurt anymore. Um, for the most part, uh, but they are, they're mine. Um, -hmm. because I, I bore them. I endured them. Um, and that to me, that's as good a, a metaphor for grief, um, as any, um, is that, you know, it is, it is what it is. It has its own story for you, um, depending on what you lost, how you felt about it and what your heart is like in that, in those days and weeks and years. Um, ultimately it's just, it's a scar that you carry. Um, and it's, it's part of our humanity. It's, it never goes away. Um, it, it doesn't affect you every day, but it never goes away. Um, and a lot of people have said that about grief. I, I didn't make that up. Um, but like I said, it is the the persistence of the marks of our suffering um, as part of our story is one of the reasons that I buy this whole Christianity thing, this whole Jesus thing. So it's part of my faith. Um, and uh, And part of that is grief and loss.
0: Thank you for joining us for this conversation about faith and disability. We encourage you to find local conversation partners about everything we've talked about in today's podcast, and we hope it's been helpful to you in your conversations about the pandemic, faith, illness, and disability. Special thank you to today's guest, Gabriel Lamazares. So Robin, as we wrap up this conversation,
1: um, what are some things that stand out from this conversation several things stand out in this conversation one um it's worth noting that we recorded this in early to mid-december so really like before the whole omicron wave was a thing at least in north america Uh, and then we came back and are finishing it in january Um, And I remember as I was doing some of the editing on this texting and being like the conversation about vaccination and the unvaccinated and the tension with that and protecting people's health and our ability to function well in society, that tension just feels so present, you know, so much later in life and in the pandemic. And that could be like its own episode. (laughs) I right. suspect, but that that felt very real to
0: me, yeah, as we go along and we record episodes that mention the pandemic, and there is no such thing as a um an accessible alter episode that's been recorded in non pandemic times um every time yes. we mention it someday some someday that's a dream of ours, someday, <sighs> but every time we mention the pandemic, whether we talk about it extensively or just in passing. Every time an episode airs, we're at, a, we're at a different place. And yet the same themes keep coming up as time yeah. goes on.
1: Yeah. And then the other one that really stood out to me, and I remember like Gabe left and we were still on the, the call together. Um, and just turning to each other and being like amazed at how the theology, especially at the end of the episode, is like a direct through line to our previous episode with the disabled God, which we had not queued up. He had not heard that episode. Like there's just this beautiful symmetry there though. Right. I mean, we had not talked
0: um, about those issues in particular in the sort of um, pre-interview interview. interview. I mean, I I had had a conversation with him just to talk about um, possible themes and questions we might have um, the week before we did the interview Um, but I don't think any of those things came up exactly like that. And it's just, it's a good illustration of, I think the experiences that people have when they're dealing with, um, faith and illness and, um, and grief and suffering and the kinds of things that that are said Mm -hmm. that really don't represent people's experiences. So I loved when he, um, I loved when he talked about, you know, just because you're going through a bad thing and you found good in it, doesn't mean the good thing happened because I mean, the yeah. bad thing happened. So that the good stuff could happen. That was, that was great. And like you said, that's right in line with our mm-hmm. um, discussion of the disabled God. And then also um, what he said about the resurrected Christ yeah. being wounded and scarred and carrying his scars forward. Same, you know, same thing coming at it from a different set of
1: experiences, but still reaching that same conclusion about what that means. I think it's one of those signs that good disability theology is just good theology. Like it, yes. it's actually just good for everyone yeah. to know and to be able to articulate and to hear articulated well. Yes. That is just like
0: good accessibility. Accessible yeah. design is it's good, for, good everybody. for everybody.
1: I was going to say, this. I feel like this is a subtle but definitely reoccurring theme in a lot of the conversations we have had and will have.
0: The only other thing that I was thinking, um, I, I just recently listened to this episode a second time um, as I'm getting ready to transcribe it. And the only other thing I was thinking is I thought, um, I just want to say thank you again to Gabe um, mm-hmm. for what I thought was a really... Moving and thoughtful look at the experience of the AIDS epidemic um, within, like he kept saying, a certain component of the gay community, no means representative of everyone's experience, mm-hmm. but the experience you know, that he had as a member of that community and what it was like to be there at that time. I just, I was listening to it and I thought this is a really important thing, you know, telling the history and mm-hmm. for people to be aware, it helps to know the patterns that show up in crises, that some things have happened before. And so when they happen again, you you have a sense that this is not new, which can be both disturbing, but also comforting sometimes. But I appreciated his discussion of what that time was like, and just a look at at the history for those of us who may not have known as much about it.
1: Listening to the Accessible Altar, a podcast at the intersection of faith and disability, hosted by Robin King and Stephanie Shockley. We record on the traditional land of the Lenape and Treaty Six Territory.
0: If you like the Accessible Altar, please rate and review us wherever you find podcasts.
1: For additional information about anything we talked about in this episode, as well as a transcript of the show, check out the show notes on our website, www.accessiblealtar.com.
0: We are on Twitter and Instagram as at Accessible Altar. And join us on our Facebook page at The Accessible Altar.
1: If you have questions, feedback, or ideas for future episodes, please email us at accessiblealtar at (laughs) gmail.com.